Welcome. You are now listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Show with Roshan Lugani, Eric Olson, and Adrian Nicholson. This show is an exploration of ideas to help you work towards your ideal retirement. Roshan Lungani and Eric Olson serve clients across the U.S. They offer financial planning and investment advice through Arate Wealth Advisors, LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor, and securities through Arate Wealth Management, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC, and NFA. Get ready for the financial independence of your dreams. Welcome to the Retirement Lifestyle Show. I'm your host, Roshan Lungani, here with uh, my co-host, Eric Olson. Uh, Adrian is not here with us today. He's decided to go on vacation. He got sick of us, I guess. Uh, hopefully, he's having some fun right now. He went up to Maine, I believe. That's a beautiful place. Have you ever been up there? I have not. The furthest. I've driven, I think I've driven past it. I was going to say the furthest north I've been is New York, but I've driven all the way up to Canada, but I don't think I go past Maine in that route. Ah. Uh. Uh, yeah, well, sometime, man. It's a it's a beautiful, beautiful area. Well, good. I'm excited about today's conversation with you, Roshan. Yeah, today should be fun. Uh, it'll line up on the opposite side, I guess, of our of our last conversation where we were talking about ways to be defensive. If you're thinking things will go down, uh, the markets will go down based on the election. But those defensive strategies can be used anytime you feel. Uh, feel the need to protect your portfolio or want to be opportunistic potentially on the downside. Today, we're going to be on the other side of the coin. How can you be opportunistic if you think things are heading up uh, and we're using the election as a backdrop once again? So Eric, right. what are some of your initial initial thoughts on the subject? Well, I'll say um, we are afflicted in some ways by several different forces. So it's a little harder than would be true perhaps in a more um, normal time uh, to make some of the judgments about which of the, where opportunity might lie as we approach the election, because we we also have the, the triple forces, not just of a potential change in administrations, but we also have this disease and no um, complete solutions to this yet. And we also have ongoing disagreements at uh, the state and federal level about the extent to which economies ought to be shut down or businesses and mm -hmm. normal interactions uh, ought to be shut down. So that's having an economic consequence just from the shutdown that is overlaid on top of concerns about the disease, which is all of course overlaid as well on top of the election. So there are a lot of moving parts in all of this and trying to make pronouncements or at least to try to make judgments about where opportunity might lie with in the narrow area of policy changes that might occur election related. I think it's just a, it's a much more uncertain business than would normally be the case. It, it definitely is. Now, one thing I liked about our last recording and this topic today is, uh, as I said, you can use it at, at any time you feel a lot of what we're going to talk about can be used at any time, right? If you feel there is an opportunity, you can use some of these strategies. Now, we're and as I said, we're using the election as 
some really the election as as some of the catalysts. But yes, there are all these other factors out there with the pandemic as well. There are people that that find a way to use these things as an opportunity. Like when we talk about the pandemic, I just think of uh, uh, Bill Ackman, who at the beginning of the year essentially bet that the pandemic would come from China to the United States and it would be devastating. And I think he was up like 30 some percent in the month of March. So hmm. I don't know how he's done how he's done since, but the, the point is that what we hope to share to to you to with you today to all of our listeners is if you have an idea, here are some ways where you can execute on it. And even though our ideas today are specific to the election, they can be somewhat universal. Right. So I'll throw in a couple other, I think, elements as a background to all of this. In my case, I would say I am more of my comments today will probably be sector related, the sectors of the U.S. economy. And but I also want to say when we're talking about thinking opportunistically, just as you indicated a moment ago, Roshan, to be opportunistic may uh, may be an approach to being opportunistic may be to do as you just mentioned Bill Ackman did, which is yeah. to anticipate that there would be a down move and use the down move to your advantage by, in his case, I would imagine he was either using options or he was shorting futures or, you know, some, or shorting individual stocks or ETFs or something of that kind. But nonetheless, using the, the, expectation of declines or at least greater declines in some areas than in others as your mechanism for opportunity. Yes. And actually, Eric, you mentioned sectors. Let's start there. So you had said you've got some sectors uh, that you wanted to uh, discuss. Mm -hmm. What's the first one that comes to mind? All right. Well, let me, I'm going to approach this from the vantage point of using sort of as the default assumption here of a democratic win of the White House. And in fact, even going one step further, a democratic sweep of White House, Senate and House of Representatives. And I'm doing that not because that's my particular prognostication. I, I'm very reticent to make such prognostications, but I am at least able to see where the polling results have trended and more than the polling results to see where the betting markets are going. For those that are not f familiar with the betting markets, believe it or not, the betting markets do exist in which people will put up real money uh, predicting or depending on the outcome of the election. So it may, right, right now, for example, one source that you can see at a glance how some betting markets are working is to go to realclearpolitics.com. Realclearpolitics.com, for those that may not know this, is one of the few sites, I would say, or sources uh, that seems to uh, want to put the best of both th thinking and writing on um, each end of the political spectrum together in one place so that you can read what people who th think like you are saying and what people who don't think like you are saying. And they also blend together on one of their, um, one of their tools is the blending or their average 
of poll results. And then they also have a section devoted to averaging the various betting markets that are out there. So as we're having this conversation in early August of 2020, uh, at this point, uh, at least starting with the general election and a Trump versus Biden contest, what you see is, is that at the moment, as we're having this conversation, the average in the poll polling data, the average is those expressing support for Biden is at 49.4 and those expressing support for Trump is 42. And so you have a 7.4% gap in terms of the express support through these various polls. And I'm, I'm not going to say which ones are more or less authoritative or reliable, but just some of them that would be recognizable to you would be Economist uh, slash YouGov, the um, CNBC and Change, the Harvard-Harris polls at, at Rasmussen reports, the Hill slash Harris X. There's numerous polls that are factored into this. And so that's at one level, the poll results. Now, those poll results have gone up and down. If we look back to, let's say, October or thereabouts in um, 2019, and those numbers for Biden have gone from anywhere as low as about 47 to as high as about 53. And so right now they're at 49. They're in the middle or I would say they're about average for where they've been. Trump's his numbers are probably about average for where his numbers have been. That's been as low as fraction below 40 to um, close to 46 at the high point. Well, but right, let me interrupt you for a second. So I just want to uh, bring this back to the listener. Uh, what Eric is saying is he's not predicting who's going to win. He's just looking at at what the odds are saying right now. Right. right? And the, the odds are just are saying uh, uh, are saying um, that it's likely to be Biden and it's likely to be a uh, Democrats are likely to take uh, Congress as well. Is that correct? That is correct. Well, okay. and this what I'm citing right here is strictly related to the to the general presidential election and not to the Senate or House um, consequences. They have polling averages for those as well. What I'm just saying is is that these numbers have they tend to go up and down, part because of the sampling procedures and in part because of how people are registered and so forth. There's usually an advantage in these numbers for whoever is the Democratic candidate, but it's certainly been a pronounced amount. And and at this point, 7.4% difference in express support for them is not an insignificant difference. But where, But switching to the betting markets, interestingly enough, Trump from let's say March of this year through late May of this year uh, on the betting markets, Trump had the edge with more than 50% expecting that Trump would, would win and uh, fewer than 40, I'd say low forties expecting that Biden would win. But starting in, in about early June, 
it's just been, or late May, it's been rising and rising and rising such that moving from about uh, slightly less than 41%, uh, uh, or I'll explain what these numbers mean just in, in just a moment, but Biden's number has moved from 41, I'll say, to just over 60, whereas Trump's has dropped from 50 to now about 36 or 37. What that means is, is that it said differently is it, you can win a dollar it, at the end of the line. Uh, if, uh, if Trump wins, you can pay 36 cents now or 37 cents now <laughs> in order to win a dollar later. Whereas if you think Biden's going to win, you can pay 61 cents now and, and win a dollar later. So someone's going to give up their money. <laughs> uh, but at this point, it only costs 30, 37 cents to, to buy a dollar at the, at the win if Trump wins. And so, or if you said differently, if you put 37 cents betting on Trump and then Biden wins instead, you only lost 37 cents. So it's just, that's, that's how those numbers move. But it's now at this point, the betting markets are strongly favoring uh, Biden by 20, you know, there's a 24 cent difference in the cost of uh, <laughs> buying a dollar at the end of the election. So that's the backdrop. And so for that reason, I am going to be working from the vantage point of a democratic sweep. So let me just pause there and see, maybe that was a little too complex, but at least it, it explains why I'm using democratic sweep as the base case in this. Well, Eric, what this got me thinking about is uh, you had said uh, you can actually bet on this. So then I had to look up other stuff you can bet on that's just strange, uh -huh. <laughs> out, of, out of the ordinary. And I guess politi political bets, not that strange. So I Googled this and I'm not a bit, uh, uh, really an online gambler, but I found a website. So for the 2020 election, you can actually put money that uh, beyond Biden, right? You can put money that... Uh, Kanye West, Mike Pence, Mitt Romney. These are some people you can actually put your money saying they will win. Uh -huh. And they're giving you like ridiculous odds. And uh, uh, Oprah Winfrey's on the list too. Hillary Clinton's still on there, Michelle Obama. So uh, to ask you, Eric, if, if you bet a dollar that Oprah Winfrey wins the presidential election and she actually wins, how much do you think you get back? What do you think your odds are? <laughs> oh, I'm going to guess that it's somewhere 100 to 1. 20,000 to one. Oh my gosh. Really? So, and, and so, and then I just started looking at this. There are some ridiculous things you can bet on. They have something called celebrity death matchups. Which celebrity do you think will pass away first? So the, the first one on the list is Betty White versus Carol Burnett. And I, I, people must be betting on this if there are these. Like, the craziest one I saw, too, was betting on the end of the world. And I'm just wondering if you bet on the end of the world and you're right, you're not going to get paid because you're gone. Right. So, so anyway, let's, bringing us back to from crazy things you can bet on back to our, our topic uh, of, of the day, which is opportunistic ways to look at this election. So let's just say you believe you believe there's going to be a, a Democratic sweep. And now Biden's the president. Uh, Democrats control Congress. What's the sector that stands out to you first as a uh, as a potential opportunity? 
Okay. Well, uh, all right. You're, you're continuing to ask and I'm continuing to give background. So I just want to say, if people are curious to do this for the, uh, this exercise for themselves, one place you might go is to, I believe it's demconvention.com. And this is, they have a white paper available there, which is at, at least in its present form, the closest thing to uh, the party's platform at their convention. I think that convention is coming up in less than two weeks time. Uh, obviously, it's not going to be a, the conventional kind of convention. I think there's only, only going to be some delegates there and everybody else will be uh, dialing in or coming in via Zoom. But uh, you, you yourself can just look at some of the policy priorities and uh, policy intentions that are being expressed by the Democratic Party in general and Biden in particular, particularly after they had the joint task force between the Sanders representatives and the Biden representatives to try to ha hammer out some things. Uh, in that case, Joe Biden has, has said he'll, he'll look at it. I don't know that he said he's going to adopt wholesale, the sorts of things that are there, but at least you can see uh, directionally what what, what uh, was said there. And so then that you as well can undertake some of this. So institutional investors looking at all of this were, this is about a week ago where um, it was reported in Barron's, they were being asked, well, assuming that there is a democratic sweep, what are you thinking about uh, in terms of outcomes for the market broadly? This set of institutional investors, by that we mean not retail investors, but people who invest for a living, their view was is that uh, the policies being expressed by the Democratic Party generally and by Biden in particular would be bearish uh, or very bearish for 58% of the industries, that they'd be neutral for 27% of the industries, and bullish or very bullish for 15% of the industry. So we're going to focus on, um, again, if you're thinking in terms of going long or going short, what they, what they said would be helped by, what the various experts have said, what they believe would be helped by a democratic sweep, and then what they think would be hurt by. And so if you're thinking opportunistically, and, and you agree with the broad betting markets and with the broad polls, then you, you might want to say, okay, then I'll, I'll go short on some of these uh, industries that look like they might be hurt the most. And uh, I'll offset some of that risk by going long on some of the ones they think might be helped the most. So here we go. Ready? In, for, for reason number one, or to think about this, is that if the Biden administration were to um, be able to get the Congress to also approve raising corporate income tax rates back up from the 21% area now to roughly 28%, then probably one of the sectors that would be least hurt by that because they pay generally the, the lowest effective rate in taxes would be the materials sector. Probably the group that would be hurt sort of on an intermediate level because their tax rates are sort of in the next, their, or their effective tax rates are sort of in the next level would be communications companies, dis, uh, consumer discretionary companies, companies in the healthcare sector, the information technology sector, and utility sectors. But the ones that get hit the hardest, generally speaking, with taxes are the following four. Consumer staples, energies, financials, 
and industrials. So if you if you share that view that higher corporate tax rates are likely and you you are mindful of how they affect different sectors differentially, that would be that would be shifting your thinking then potentially about how to tilt your portfolio long or short with respect to those various sectors. I've well, got more, actually, but uh, comments I'm, or thoughts about that? Yeah, I want to pick one out of there, energy, right? Mm-hmm. Because um, I find this interesting because not only the tax thing you mentioned, but wouldn't energy also be a sector that would be hurt because green energy will be such a positive space if they're, uh, you know, Biden's talked a lot about, he they compare it to the Green New Deal, but he's been a really vocal on saying it's not the same thing, but it's taking some principles. So based on what he said, I have no idea what he's doing, just head, heading in that direction mm-hmm. uh, with that, without committing. But if we think, would it be reasonable to say, well, if energy is going to hit by a tax hike and energy is going to be hit because of the shift to green energy, there's an opportunity there to profit on a declining energy price, prices or counter that if you are currently invested in energy, it might be an opportunity to divest from it. Yes, both of those are true. And what you're pointing out, among other things, is just the different the the various ways in which policy preferences are expressed. So one is through tax policy. Mm-hmm. Another is through spending or fiscal policy. Another is through regulatory um, changes uh, affecting various industries. And those could be, as we've seen in environmental regulation, as well as um, in just broad corporate regulation, and one area where Democrats historically have been more um, more active is in antitrust. Um, we also have uh, employment policy and wage policy. So there's many different ways in which these policies can be expressed. And as you pointed out, particularly with respect to energy, not merely at the taxation level, but also at the environmental regulation level, green companies probably would be helped and fossil fuel based energy companies probably would be would be hurt yeah i i agree with that and I, and I think what's interesting on on that to me is that fossil fuel companies just have so many headwinds in general mm-hmm. right so and we talked about the pandemic well people are d- definitely driving less. I spent less than $2 per gallon earlier. Well, I shouldn't say that. Part of it was my discount for my grocery shopping. So it was, <laughs> it was so the actual price was a little over $2, but either way, uh, gas prices are already, already down, right? Mm-hmm. And you're, you're, you've seen a lot of the, the energy companies got crushed at the beginning. They have recovered to a certain degree, but nowhere near where they were. Mm-hmm. So I think that energy in general seems to be a space where uh, there are just a lot of hurdles for those companies. Well, it's interesting just about that. I, I know we don't want to make these podcasts necessarily too much of the moment, but just in the last few days, if I recall reading this correctly, OPEC, which had, had voluntarily suspended um, production or had imp- voluntarily imposed uh, production cuts of about nine million dollar nine million barrels yeah. per day. Uh, those went off a day or two ago, I believe it was. And so uh, 2 million barrels a day came back online. And so as a result, you saw what were already fairly low uh, 
prices at the pump drop again. Yeah. So uh, I just picked that one off your list just because, um, and I know when we talk about multi-factor investing, we're not talking about this, we're talking about something else, but there just seems to be multiple things that stood out for me with the energy, right? Policy Mm -hmm. uh, wise, tax wise, and then just headwinds in general. So Mm -hmm. yeah, tough, tough place to be in right now. All right. Well, I've got, I have a couple other ideas here. Yeah. Shall I proceed? Hold on. Before you proceed, let's, let's, I, I, let's, with the energy, let's just say you had a feeling it was going down and you can mm-hmm. use these strategies for any of the sectors. So I just want to mm-hmm. complete this. How Good. would you, how could you go about doing that? So let, let first, the, the simple one to me first is let's say you own energy already. Mm-hmm. You could just sell your positions, mm-hmm. right? And what else can you do to either protect yourself uh, or to profit from an energy uh, the energy sector getting hit uh, based on the election. Right. So I'm going to offer two possibilities and um, or, or three possibilities, really. But w- uh, in addition to your just exit the sector approach, okay. one approach would be and, and that's one where you might just say, I don't really know what's going to happen with it. And I just don't want to be here to find out. It, people might remember from our conversation two podcasts ago where I was talking about various um, volatility, the volatility in various sectors as in the lead up to and in the aftermath of elections. Mm-hmm. And you, pardon me, you might recall that energy was one of the more volatile sectors. So if, on that basis, the exit strategy that you just outlined for those people that are just a little faint of heart. This is more a defensive than an opportunistic approach, but mm-hmm. it, you might just say, I'm going to exit. But if you're thinking opportunistically, one thing you might do is to short the sector, which is in this case, one um, a way of shorting the sector. If you're adept at this is to use future contracts, you can for less money have more sort of portfolio impact by being short. But you may say, no, I don't really, futures are inherently leveraged. I don't really want to be leveraged in this. I just want to be dollar for dollar short. Then what you could do is to short the sector using one of the various energy sector exchange traded funds. Or if you felt like you had this precision understanding of this sector, you might pick out some of those companies that you have reason to believe are the going to be the hardest hit or would be the hardest hit and you could be short those and if you wanted to if you wanted to hedge uh, that viewpoint a bit you could be short the ones that you thought are the weakest and offset that with a long position in the ones that you thought would probably hold up the best in all of that so that you'd have really in that case it would be a bet on the the delta or the difference really between the the subsequent performance of those two companies or that basket of companies in the long side and the short side. Uh, let's give well, detail on each of these. Each, okay. uh, so first, your first one you said was futures. Mm-hmm. Uh, so futures in futures have leverage. Leverage is taking essentially taking one dollar and it's invested as if it's five. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to or do something t- like twenty that, or a hundred, depending, yeah, yeah it, exactly, it's all on the futures contract, some right? Some multiple. Mm-hmm. So actually, and let's use ten, and because I'll just give you a quick numerical example. Let's say you took a dollar you invested it as if it's 10. So now your dollar Mm -hmm. represents $10. And if you were wrong by 10%, 
So that $10 position goes down to, I'm sorry, goes up to 11 in this case, because you're betting it's short. You've lost 10%. Well, you've lost your entire dollar. Mm-hmm. So a 10% move, if you're using 10 to 1 leverage, can wipe you out. I, whenever we talk about leverage on products, I just lo- like to give this warning that be very, very careful. It's very dangerous. And Warren Buffett's uh, statement about what, what are you in a rush for and um, you know, financial <laughs> weapons of mass destruction, all those come to mind. So be very careful out there. Uh, there are ways to use the leverage intelligently to lower your risk if you use it opportunistically to maximize maximize your gain. Uh, what can make you money quickly can also cost you money quickly. So be very careful out there. Then the next thing, Eric, you mentioned, I believe, were the inverse ETFs. Is that correct? Well, you could either be using inverse ETFs or you could simply be just shorting some and being long others. So Let's come back might... to that. That was your third one, I believe. So the, okay. the short inverse ETF, there are levered, levered ones out there. So the, the warning label I just put on futures could go on to these inverse ETFs. But uh, as you're listening to this, an inverse ETF is inverse mean, meaning opposite. It just does the opposite of that sector. So we're talking about energy right now. You can go out and purchase an ETF. uh, An an ETF is an exchange-traded fund. You can purchase an energy ETF that will do the inverse of the energy index. And they'll tell you, the individual ETF will tell you what constitutes that index. So let's just say they're they're using, uh, there's an energy ETF, and it's based on... um, uh, it's based on I'm picking crude oil prices, for example, uh, just because that's the one I that came up came up to my mind first and online mm-hmm. first. Well, if crude oil goes up a dollar and you have an inverse, well, you just went down a dollar. You will do the opposite of this. The way they manufacture these things are using futures in many cases, and in many cases they're daily. So if you own this thing for six months. And let's say you were right and energy went down 10%. It's very possible you didn't make any money in those six months because the daily volatility will impact your gains. So if you're using the energy ETF as an inverse, just understand your risk is greater than uh, just the opposite. And they're typically uh, adjusted on a daily basis. Right. And for that reason, Roshan, because of the the properties of inverse ETFs, mm-hmm. I would probably say for people who are thinking their their outlook is such that they would want to be short that sector for more than, you know, on a day trading basis, I would say instead of going long on an inverse ETF, I would be short uh, on a on a, the long version of that uh, that sector ETF. So yeah, we've explained short before. So mm-hmm. let's just do that again. Uh, okay. So shorting on the energy ETF, um, the exchange traded fund, the ETF that's based on that energy sector. Mm-hmm. What shorting it means you're selling it now. And it's been someone has lent you that security to sell. So you mm-hmm. may be paying interest on this loan. Mm-hmm. And you can buy it in the future. So in general with investing, you want to buy low and sell high. Well, in this case, you're selling first, hopefully high if you're if you're betting this is going down. Mm-hmm. And then you're buying later, hopefully low in this example. So it's still buy low and sell high. You're just reversing the order. And Eric's point of shorting that sector, that index exists already. 
and you can just buy the, they built the ETF copying an index and they own all the shares of the stock, typically the stocks that make up the index within the ETF. Whereas an inverse ETF is manufactured typically using futures. So by shorting the energy ETF, it's very similar to just shorting a stock where you don't have to deal with the additional risk of the daily volatility of the underlying futures that make up an inverse ETF. So Eric, that's a great point that will definitely, uh, I think, one, give you the more likely give you the performance you're looking for. You don't have to deal, deal with this uh, negative roll yield, as they, as they call it, potentially losing money along the way on some of these things. And uh, it might give you better exposure to what you're looking for. Right. Uh, it's so true, especially if you're doing this on um, an ETF that's built on underla- the underlying constituent parts are futures. Sometime we'll, we could talk about futures and we can talk about the difference between uh, the futures contracts and whether rolling from one contract to the next contract is helping you or is is hurting you. And um, we'll, we can explain why. Uh, by the way, I would just say, broadly speaking, even though we're talking about shorting, I don't want to just make it seem that this is, oh, sounds, you know, we're making it sound easy. So it perhaps it is easy. Shorting is a is a skill that not even some of the smartest folks out there can't get right. So we're just we're we're doing this more sort of as a conceptual exercise and how you could approach it. But probably this would be for somebody who has a certain degree of conviction and expertise about this, um, not only about the sector but also about the the how to implement a short strategy. The other thing I'll say, Roshan, which you said earlier. And, and just really needs to be expanded on is the whole idea of risk control. Mm-hmm. Whether or not it's levered, when, when you are long something, what's the worst that can happen? Well, the worst that can happen is, is that it goes to zero and that everything that you have uh, that, you, that you spent or to buy something uh, is erased by something going to zero. But you're limited, your loss in that case is at least limited. And you might be saying, limited? It went to zero. But it is at least limited to going to zero. If you're short something, then, then conceptually at least, there's no limit on your loss. Because if let's say you shorted something, you shorted one share of something at $10. Now you're basically, you're in at 10. And for every dollar that that moves against you, you're losing effectively a dollar. You have one share. And if it went from 10 to 11, you just were, now you're, you're, for you to exit your position, it's going to cost you 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 gained ten dollars when you shorted it. Somebody paid you ten. Remember, you sold high first, expecting to buy lower later. So you you received ten, but to get out of this position now, it's going to cost you eleven. What if it goes to twenty? Well, now it's going to cost you twenty. You received ten. It's going to cost you twenty to get out. You, basically, uh, you're not only losing the ten that you received, but you're losing ten of your own money. If it goes to thirty, you're now out twenty. It so so it just continues without limitation. So, be whenever you enter a short position, I would say whenever you enter any position, know what your loss limit is, and uh, size your 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 entry into that accordingly. And I would say, generally speaking, a good rule of thumb is don't allow any position you put on 
to uh, cost you more than 2% of your overall portfolio if things go really badly against you. And if you're thinking about shorting, I would tell you to Google uh, Tesla shorting because there's been a (laughs) lot of talk over the last year about Elon and uh, the people that are shorting his stock. And most recently, he sold Tesla short shorts as a way to make fun of them because (laughs) as they've thought the stock will go down, it's just continued to go up. So uh, be careful out there if you're going to go about this. Uh, I'm going to try to get us back on to, to the topic now okay, just because right. we're trying to talk about ways to be opportunistic <laughs> and shorting is a potential way with this. But yes. I think we were more talking about the other side, right? Things that can go up in value as opposed to things that we think will go down in value. Well, we can't leave you. I, I'm happy to do that and to come back to that. But you sort of led us into this discussion of things that you would use or how you would yes. how you would implement an idea. So can I just finish on one thing related to this that you know so well, and then we'll let you sort of share how this operates. Well, I'm hoping it's the long short because I realized I missed that one. On your, <laughs> that was your third third item. Well, you, you could uh, you, we could come back to the long short, but no. I, the other instrument that you can use for this, which which r- limits some of your risk, is an option. Mm-hmm. So if your if your outlook is if your outlook is positive or bullish on a particular sector, you could buy that sector, but you also could buy an option on that sector. And then if it goes up, you're rewarded. And if it goes down, your loss is limited to what you paid for the option. Yeah. And I'm going to, I thank you for introducing that because that's an important one too. I'm going to go back to the example of your, you think energy will go down. Okay. So, and Eric mentioned earlier, uh, we talked about shorting the energy ETF and what Eric mentioned very uh, wisely to you is that your theoretical loss is unlimited, right? If the energy ETF it, it was at $10 and it went up to 30, well, you only put, te- you were expecting $10 of risk and now you've lost 20. You've lost twice what you, what you initially had put, put up, uh, a way to limit that a little bit is to look at, in this specific example, a put option. So you are purchasing this, you're buying a put option, which would bet that that energy sector will go down, and all you can lose is your premium if you're wrong. So it's a way to limit your your loss. Now, with options, as we've talked about this, with, with futures, there is leverage involved. So A, be very careful how you use it. Another important note is options do have an expiration date and a strike price. The strike price is the price uh, of the security that you're betting it'll be below if you're betting a put. And the end, the, the expiration date is when it runs out. So if you wanted to be, if, if you thought something was going to happen quickly in many, you can get options that expire the same day for certain things, right? So you can get weeklies, monthlies, you can go out a few years uh, with these options. So you want to make sure that you understand in this case, where your profit points are and what your time frame is. And it's, it's very, very complicated. So I'll just say, say that to the listener, similar to the futures piece we talked about earlier, there's leverage, there's a lot of complication involved. So if you do something like this, be very careful, but it could be uh, a better route for you than just shorting the ETF or the inverse ETF. 
but each of these have advantages and disadvantages uh, to them. Your time frame is very important. And the point we've made many times before, and Eric mentioned today, position sizing it is very important. Making sure that you can't lose more than 2% of your portfolio is probably a good rule of thumb. All right, Roshan, thank you. I mean, so now we've talked about mechanisms and and uh, boy, oh boy, what a whirlwind tour. So, you know, listeners, if you're not acquainted with these things, uh, I hope you fast forwarded through this and, and now are back with us to talk about, about some of the sectors. So we were talking about different kinds of policies and how those policies, uh, at least you know, in the viewpoints of some prognosticators, would help or hurt certain sectors differentially. And so let's let's shift from maybe this conversation about um, tax, the, the effective tax rates, and just talk about, generally speaking, um, some of the other policy consequences uh, that we would probably expect, or at least looking at the what the Democrats are saying and Biden has, has been saying about their policy directions, if they're not just using that as talking points, but if they really intend to do some of those things, then what else would happen? So one area, in addition to raising corporate income tax rates, corporate, corporate tax rates has been a discussion of raising uh, tax rates on dividends and capital gains to match those rates that apply for ordinary income. It, just to explain that, if for those people are scratching their heads, what? If you are in, let's say, uh, a 10 or 12% marginal income t- tax bracket, not many of our clients are, but for those that um, enjoy a maybe a window between retiring and when they turn on their social security, they, they can be, if they're in that 10 to 12% marginal income tax bracket, then their taxes on what are known as qualified dividends. That's not all dividends, but at least ones that fall in this definition of a qualified dividend and their tax on long-term capital gains is 0%. And for people who are in somewhat higher tax brackets, most of them, if let's say they're at a 22, a 24, a 32 or higher, uh, although you can go, these rates can go higher still, but their their rates will be typically whatever that tax rate was that I just cited, and it'll be 15% on qualified dividends or 15% on long-term capital gains. By the way, it can go up from there. Some of our clients have 20% rates and and so forth. But the point is, is that it's been rewarded or qualified dividends and long-term capital gains have been treated with a tax preference. In other words, they're treated more gently. Some Democrats reason, hey, that's not fair because those people that are in the investor class are effectively receiving a lower tax rate on their source of of income. The counter argument to that is, is, well, wait a second, they they were taxed at ordinary income tax rates when they made the income. Why are they now being taxed again on growth of the things that they'd already paid taxes on? You know, we can get into the philosophy of all of that, but that, at least that's the argument. So if that were to happen in relative terms, what would help? What would be unaffected by that? Well, it would be ordinary bonds. And those stocks that pay what are not what what are known as ordinary dividends as opposed to qualified dividends. Um, one group that would be, I guess, neutral would be municipal bonds because they're at least under the, any of these tax proposals, as well as currently true, municipal bonds are not taxed at the federal level. 
at all. But one set of things that would be hurt would be things that pay qualified dividends. And among those are preferred stocks. So again, how would you, how would you maneuver in this? Then you might, again, coming back to Roshan's earlier approach to this, you might exit preferred stocks if you think that this policy change is likely. Uh, or you might, you might, um, you, you might say, I'm going to swing more of my portfolio over to those things that pay, uh, that pay ordinary dividends with recognizing that those things at least shouldn't be, there shouldn't be people selling things that uh, issue qualified dividends. And then I'll add one more piece in here, just as a possible outcome of this policy change. It's possible that if the between the time that the election occurs in early November and January 1st, it's conceivable that the, a number of companies may say, you know what we're going to do? Any dividends that we were expecting to issue in 2021, we're just going to clear them out right now. <laughs> we're going to prepay some large portion of dividends that maybe we were anticipating would hold till next year. And we're going to put those into investors' hands before December 31st. Why? Because oftentimes when tax changes are made, they are not retroactive to election day. They're instead often retroactive to the beginning of the calendar year in which a new administration uh, takes office. And so if that's the case, if that pattern, it's not a rule that it has to work that way, but if that pattern were to hold, then what you would see is, is that the, any dividends issued before the end of the calendar year 2020 would still be treated in that favorable tax way, whereas anything that came in 2021 or later, at least during that administration, uh, could be subject to those higher rates. Roshan? Yeah, I'm thinking through with the uh, dividends and and uh, what they will implement there, and I'll I don't know how my confidence level in them going. I, I don't even know the way to phrase it. I don't know how you go after taxes right now with what's going on with the pandemic, mm-hmm. right? So with with when we when we went through, through that long path of of energy, I was just thinking, well, you know, there are a lot of things that are negative to energy, right? It's not just this one tax adjustment that would hurt that would hurt mm-hmm. energy. There are all these other things. Mm-hmm. With the tax code, I don't disagree at all with with some of the outcomes you mentioned, like preferred stock values going down. Could dividends be prepaid? Those are those are definitely possibilities. I just wonder how do you raise taxes right now? You know, it, it, with with everything that's going on. And I've had this discussion with other people, and they say, "Well, you know, um, the joke is uh, is uh, well, Congress is never logical anyway. So why are you thinking about that, right? So I, I just don't know this one. This one to me is just a little bit harder to think through execution on, just because." Mm-hmm. I, I just I just am a little skeptical that that they maybe it's hopeful maybe I'm hopeful that they don't do anything like that right now I don't know how to describe it but I'm, I'm not necessarily a believer maybe I, I I think they can pull it off I keep I keep stammering on my words just because <laughs> every statement I say right after I'm finished saying it to me seems like well that might not be true so you know, yeah just that's because, possible <laughs> yeah so when I say <clears throat> how could they pull it off how could they do this well 
it doesn't make any sense to me, but that doesn't mean that they won't do it, right? So, well, tax. it's possible. Yeah. So here's another area then of policy shifts. Okay. So in addition to tax policy, so first we were talking about the tax policy changes potentially for corporate rates. Mm-hmm. Then we were talking about tax policy changes for capital gains and dividends, qualified dividends. Let's talk about uh, spending priorities okay. and uh, a few other things like that. So yes. generally speaking, go ahead. Did you have some thoughts about that? Well, no, I, I can start with the one that, that to me stands out uh, mm-hmm. as a uh, as a big one, but uh, infrastructure. Yeah. Right. That That's one where I think money is going to go to that space. Do you have a sense of which uh, categories of infrastructure it'd be most likely to go? I I, I don't. I I did read an article recently about uh, about uh, spe- uh, that that listed specific stocks, right? But nothing that actually stood out for me uh, on the infrastructure space. Just uh, building highways. So looking at at, at companies in, involved with that, but I didn't have a specific uh, sector or companies that I'd want to put out there. Well. Uh, so I'm going to, I think in a previous podcast, I expressed a bit of a slightly jaded view about the infrastructure spending insofar yeah. as, you know, there was a, a lot of talk early on in the first uh, in the first term of the Obama administration about funding shovel-ready jobs with this massive yes. infrastructure bill, and then not a lot of them got actually funded. So... Um, you know, it's conceivable. I hope it's not the case, but it's conceivable at least that with all that, that the the talk notwithstanding that it doesn't, you know, doesn't get funded. So I would hope that it would actually get funded if there was money raised for it and spent allegedly for it. But I think one area where I think it dovetails with another policy uh, priority is in the area of green uh, yes. moving away from a fossil fuel or carbon-based infrastructure to something that's green. And so I could see certainly infrastructure spent on solar and on wind. In fact, I think I saw somewhere on the order of, uh, was it 60, potentially 60,000 wind turbines would um, talk of adding 60,000 some wind turbines. And I think it was somewhere on the order of 300 million additional solar panels or something of that kind. Um, So that's, you know, that's, that's where (laughs) there's a lot of money that would be going uh, toward those industries. Yeah. uh, Green is definitely one. And we, we did briefly mention it when we were talking about the energy sector, uh, how money going to that green energy space then the, I think you mentioned wind, solar, electric vehicles, and biofuels. Do you touch on all of those? Well, I didn't, but electric vehicles, I think, would be another category. As a matter of fact, tomorrow, this is not an advertisement, but uh, the um, Cadillac is releasing an electric vehicle uh, tomorrow. Yeah. That, so, yeah, funding for that sort of technology, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't remember. I, there was that, that tax credit that um, I don't think there was actually policy action to get rid of it. But if you remember, there was a tax credit a few years ago that expired on mm-hmm. electric vehicles. And right after that was done, I remember Tesla lowered their prices to offset the credit going away hmm. for for buyers. But the, the green space, uh, I... <laughs> I think that money will flow to that area for sure. Right. I, I would say so. And then in terms of, since we're on this theme, then it was under the same premise of some of these green 
initiatives, I think you probably see uh, some diminished opportunity for companies that are in one area or another working, pardon me, in uh, fracking or horizontal drilling. I would imagine that, uh, you know, North Dakota and um, the Eagleford Eagleford Shale area in Texas, um, the I think it's the the Marcellus Shale formations up in Pennsylvania. You know, some of these places uh, are, would be hit uh, by that, and some of the companies that are most prominent there would probably be hit. So that'd be one area, uh, and then. And thinking now shift. Uh, so I have some thoughts now shifting out of green mm-hmm. and into some other uh, categories. Some of the other big um, industrial groups that seem to be often the whipping boys for the Democratic Party, I would say, are big pharma. And so particularly if you're thinking you're going to um, you know, punish them for the prices that they're charging domestically on some of their uh, drugs and devices. Um, you know, I would think that they could be hurt by that. Incidentally, I, this is something I think is interesting that uh, the Trump administration has done, which is if our listeners aren't aware of this, the oftentimes American consumers pay more for their drugs than for the, than con- consumers around the rest of the world do for the very same drugs. And the reason is, is that a lot of those companies strike deals with single payer systems, health systems in other places that have tremendous negotiating power and say, hey, look, you might be selling that for, and I'm just making up numbers here, Roshan, you might be selling that drug for $100 in the United States, but we'll, we'll, we're, you can sell it here if you'll accept being paid $10 for it. Again, I'm just completely making up numbers out of thin air. And uh, so if, then the drug company has to ask itself, okay, if uh, while our average cost of, man, of manufacturing this, and not just the manufacturer, but the research that goes behind it, our average cost as a business for us to recover and, and remain profitable might need to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 80, our average cost, we can sell some at 10 because our marginal cost of making this is only $8 per unit. So at $10 per unit, we're still making a couple dollars on the marginal cost. Yeah, we can do that. So what the Trump administration has done is to say to these companies is is that, hey, um, we here in the United States, we don't want to pay anything more than the lowest priced offer that you've made to to anywhere else in the world. And so if someone else is getting it for 10, we want to start getting it for 10. So obviously that company can't make it at that level. So they're the, what they'd be pressured to do is either to end those lower price contracts elsewhere or adjust pricing around the rest of the world to a level that at, at an average price level is still sustainable for them. So, you know, there may be is it's not, these drug companies are going to be afflicted <laughs> only by um, pressures from a democratic administration. It sounds like they're, they're ex- would be experiencing some of this pressure here, even during a Republican administration. But nonetheless, I do think that big pharma would be one area that would ha- kind of has a bullseye on its back um, with uh, respect to, um, you know, if we had a democratic sweep, do you share that outlook? I do. And I think there are other places to look at in um, healthcare 
uh, as well, uh, like some of the managed care companies. But I want to shift a little bit on this and talk about uh, if we're talking about drugs, marijuana legalization. Mm-hmm. Right. That is likely an opportunity, not only with Democratic sweep, but also just with the fact that uh, states have states along everyone, but have been losing money. Right. Mm-hmm. So states will be able to tax marijuana at a at a high rate. Uh, Democrats will be uh, using the assumption that Democrat there's a sweep. They are going to push for allowing decriminalization and then an adjustment of the um, banking laws. Right. Mm-hmm. Both which will make uh, it, it will if you're a pro marijuana person, it'll end prohibition. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, theoretically on marijuana and how it relates mm-hmm. to healthcare is there are a lot of people that say there are a lot of um, uh, healthcare benefits Now, I, I wouldn't, I've looked at these as an investment, not necessarily from a medical perspective. So I, mm-hmm. I have no idea. I can't really comment on, on that, but I think there is a potential opportunity. Then we talk so much about things that'll go down, but uh, I think this is an opportunity of saying, okay, this is things that'll go up, which is the tradition, traditional way of buying low and selling high. Yeah. That's a, that's an interesting point. I, I think some of the, while states have on an individual level, decriminalized or allowed legalized recreational use uh, you still have because of the federal uh, sanctions on marijuana it has limited the growth of of publicly traded stocks that are dealing with uh, that are u.s based at least publicly traded stocks that are part of the marijuana industry so i, I do see what you're saying mm-hmm yeah, and I think that industry, or from once again from an investment perspective, it's really when you look at public investments. You know, just a few years ago, there weren't really many stocks in the space, and then it was, uh, I believe, it was last September, twenty nineteen, when it became uh, was legalized in Canada. So you saw a lot of companies come up. There are a lot of Canadian companies that you can invest in on the U.S. exchanges now. There are mm-hmm. exchange traded funds out there. Uh, as well that you can invest in for this for this space. We've talked when we talk about the short investment, uh, you know, shorting things. I think it becomes more complicated. But here we can get back to just traditional. You can buy the stock. You can buy an exchange traded fund that invests in the, in the space as well. And if there is legalization, you'll see a big. Uh, you can see a potentially a big increase. Yep, I think that's possible. So there's uh, at least two other areas that I think are worth noting. D- mm-hmm. uh, are there some that you wanted to highlight though before I I proceed? No, please continue, and then I'll. Okay, I'll... so I would say one area is uh, that it, I mentioned earlier antitrust, and yeah. you've also heard me express in a previous podcast in this series that that um, I, while on the one hand. Democrats have historically been more um, energized by antitrust than ha- have Republicans. Um, you heard me express skepticism about the extent to which the Democrats might impose antitrust on the on big tech, and um, I and I said that because I do believe that. Uh, to a large extent, big tech has been very supportive of some of the um, other policy preferences of the Democratic Party. And as a result, my perception, at least, is is that they might go easy on them 
um, as long as they continue to bolster some of the things that uh, Demo- the Democratic Party seemed to, to, to pursue. Having said that, I will acknowledge that mine's the minority view about that and that other prognosticators in this area do believe that it's it's not inconceivable that Facebook in particular, but not Facebook alone, could be subject to some antitrust legislation. So that might mean you have to ask yourself, would that antitrust and any sort of consequences of that um, harm the those companies or if they were forced to divide into um, sort of separate silos, some of their different things, would those the combined entities have a stronger market performance overall than the unified company would have? I don't have a view one way or the other about that, but at least it's a question I think that's worth entertaining. Have you given any thought to that, Roshan? I, I have, uh, to a certain degree, I've definitely read... Um, in a few a few places that you know what if if the antitrust thing does come up and they force the companies to break up that that would actually be greater value because then you can invest specifically in the type the portion of the business you want to invest in mm-hmm. so like just using facebook as an example uh, let's just say they split up took instagram out of there maybe you want to invest directly in instagram or directly versus directly in facebook and that that could be and, and i know it goes deeper than than just that google's a little bit more complicated because they have so many more businesses within there but i think it could it it could be one of those things that People are not happy about um, uh, the antitrust. In, in general, if you're pro-business, you're sort of anti-government forcing businesses to do what they want. But from a shareholder's perspective, this could actually create shareholder value uh, similar to a spinoff. So, all right, two other areas, and I'll just, I'm going to be much more brief on these. Uh, one is in wage policy or labor policy. Uh, it seems as though the view of the Democratic Party is that um, w- uh, there ought to be a national minimum wage. I think there's the number that's been bantied about has been somewhere around $15 an hour. So if you, if you, imposed a $15 an hour minimum wage, uh, I I believe you're going to have uh, consequences, but more at the level of businesses that are reliant on, to a large extent on minimum wage labor, of course, those would, would be affected by that. But I think that looking across the board, more of the affected businesses would be smaller companies that are not publicly traded than uh, than large publicly traded companies. And with that, then the, if you think about the secondary effect of that, well, there are secondary and tertiary effects of that, um, which I'll speculate on in a moment. But did you have anything you wanted to say about that? Yeah, with the with the, I'm personally not a fan of the of, of the policy itself. Mm-hmm. At its very most simple level, just from a cost of living perspective, right? You know, the, the the we have cost of living is very different in different parts of the United States, mm-hmm. right? So that so, but uh, but I think you're right that a lot of the companies like I we discussed last time McDonald's and how they're using the automated machine they're they're shifting over anyway mm-hmm. unrelated to the to the to the policy change mm-hmm. but I, I think companies if there is a policy change will just react and keep moving 
right? So I think they will adjust accordingly. I, I do think that some small businesses will be affected by it. I do think that uh, some players in agriculture in particular are going to, would be affected by it. Some service industries, retail in particular, although retail is being subjected to a lot of adverse right now headwinds now and um, has been uh, not just because of the COVID-19, but also because of the uh, increasing tendency of people to do their shopping online and yeah. so forth. So, but I think then th- th- if you think about it from a secondary perspective, what are some businesses that serve small businesses? If small businesses are suffering, then um, there, there are some businesses that may actually help them alleviate the pain by finding solutions to overly to, to a, a new challenge in doing their business with either less labor or more costly labor. So those businesses that can help them find solutions to that could could win in that sort of a mix. On the other hand, businesses that rely and can't help them solve that problem, but we have been helping them solve other problems at a net level. If smaller businesses are less profitable, then I would expect that companies that serve that space will also necessarily be less profitable. Yeah, and I don't and, have um, specific examples of that right now, but I, I would think in terms of tax services or IT services or uh, you know other things of that kind. Yeah, and when I when I said companies will react, I'm thinking of it from an investment perspective, right? Where can mm-hmm. I actually put? dollars to work. Mm-hmm. Um, I say that because I think small businesses will be hurt the most right, mm-hmm. from, from something like this. I think that's where you'll see the biggest uh, negative impact are with small businesses, but there's mm-hmm. no way to actually execute an investment uh, on that thesis. Well, I think there is actually, and that okay. is that um, it, ironically, though, the, the I would say Democrats are thought of as sort of like the friends of the little guy in this sense, at least I would say they're friends of big business Okay. because uh, notwithstanding our earlier discussion about being sort of the big pharma and big oil and potentially big tech and others being favorite targets, at least rhetorically, the fact is, is that large companies have a capacity to marshal lots of of uh, people in their corporate head offices that can adapt to um, regulatory uh, imp- you know steeper regulatory burdens as well as uh, steeper wage burdens etc and as a result are better able to adapt to a lot of these things than small businesses are so your the- based on that you might say all right then at least in those categories where small businesses that rely on minimum wage labor are most likely to be hurt. Who are their large company competitors who, as a result of the, the weakened posture of those smaller business competitors would inherently be the door, the playing field would be cleared for them to thrive more. Yeah, I can, I can see that. But uh, if we're using, uh, I think you had said retail as an example, Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. For this, uh, I just wouldn't want to be in that, in that space, right. In in general, right. Mm -hmm. With, with retail, they similar to what we said about energy earlier. I just think they have, uh, uh, they have so many headwinds, right. Uh, pandemic and Amazon, you know, everyone ordering online. So, I do think they, if the smaller mom and pop retail establishments close down and people now are going to the big business retail, mm-hmm. that'll help them. But that that doesn't 
make me want to put money towards it. Okay. All right. Well, then let me mention one final area that I think is from a policy standpoint has been indicated by the Democrats and and Biden in particular, and that is going easier on uh, some of the the tariff rhetoric and particularly in that category China would be China. So I would imagine that if you're a China invested business, that uh, that is that would help you uh, in at least marginally on uh, with respect to your opportunities in China. Yeah, and very much so. I was I had that on my list as well. In particular, uh, uh, I think semiconductors. Right? They they uh, there could be an opportunity uh, opportunity there with what you described. Right? If you mm-hmm. if you slow down this decoupling from China that that Trump has been pushing, then there is definitely an opportunity there. Mm-hmm. And some of that also ties in with our just our immediately previous conversation about wage policy, because if all else being equal, if companies are saying, hey, well, what we do here, we were trying to do here in the United States and to at one level that did rely on a lower wage base. Now, we may not have been employing people at minimum wages, but our labor contracts are such that if minimum wages rise, our labor contracts are structured in such a way that either immediately or over time, that puts upward pressure on our already higher wage base for, for unionized labor. What we need to do is, is actually begin to offshore more of our production again as we had been during the previous administration attempting to un, unwind, we're now going to have to re, rewind and go and look for opportunities to have more of this outside the United States where we're not subject to those minimum wage laws. Yeah. And so may, you know, I guess the jury would be out as far as the impact on them. It, those that can or can, cannot adapt to that, I suppose, would be hurt. Those that would be better able to adapt might be help. Yeah, yeah, very, very much so. Uh, and that's kind of just another uh, thing with policy. When you talk about minimum wage, is is just uh, businesses focus on profits. They will move their operations abroad, right? Mm-hmm. If, if if they have to. Uh, mm-hmm. I've got a couple other things that uh, that was your last one on your list, correct? At least on sectors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, couple other things you mentioned municipal uh municipal bonds uh as one thing but salt deduction the deduction on state and local taxes mm-hmm. could also help them so i just wanted to mention mention that and then consumer staples that mm-hmm. could be that could be a, an area that that i would think at least whole steady right at the, at the very least a, a neutral a neutral piece. The last area where there is potential negative impact that I had on the list was uh, uh, gun companies in general, mm. right? Th- those are those are potential companies that'll take take a hit with a uh, Democratic win. I would think so. Although uh, the minute that the election is over, if it's if it looks like a Democratic sweep, you could see prior to the end of the year. Gun sales go through the roof. Yeah, that's. I remember that happening. I don't remember which election it was, but it was during the Obama era where gun mm-hmm. sales just went way up because they thought there would be uh, limitations on mm-hmm. what could be purchased. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Well, so we've we've covered a lot of territory here, yes. Roshan, and uh, and again, I want to as we as we're inclined to do, we want to emphasize for our listeners that none of what we've said today is a recommendation. And in fact, I don't, I, I think I said this early on and Roshan, I don't know about you, but I think I am much more uncertain as to the outcome of the election. I'm not working from the vantage point of a dem- democratic sweep is an inevitability. And so from that standpoint, I am not, you know, in terms of what I'm doing with my own uh, portfolio, I am not positioning it in one direction or another uh, in, with respect to anything that we've talked about here earlier today. I just want to, the listeners, we're offering this out to you today to illustrate that there, while our clients have been coming to us and have been asking, hey, and as we look ahead to this election, what should I be doing differently with my portfolio? Mostly they've been asking that question from a defensive standpoint. We also recognize that some of our clients do think opportunistically. And so depending on your outlook, as to what you think might occur in this election, there are ways to think opportunistically about that, even if that means that you use a shorting strategy or an option strategy to express a pessimistic view about the the outcomes for this or that sector. So a pessimistic view actually can be translated into a, a benefit to you if your prognosis is ultimately proved to be correct. A couple great things in there. One is, I think, just as a disclosure, saying that we're not recommending any of this is something we always have to do uh, anyway. So yes, nothing, nothing was uh, is anything we'd recommend. But I think it's worth noting that a, a lot of what we're doing is trying to give you uh, some ideas and share with you some things that we're looking at. But none of it at this point is something you can execute on. And it's worth sharing that, Eric. For me, the way I try to look at these things or take advantage of any of these movements are using a, a strategy that we all already have in place uh, that utilizes momentum, right? Uh, and so uh, that the the reason I find that more useful is because if you're trying to do anything predictive, well, your prediction can be wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas when when I've got a system set in place that's built on certain parameters and rules already, I feel more comfortable making that kind of shift. So right. we've talked about rule-based uh, and following what your rules and guidelines are. Uh, I can't count how many times we've had that conversation or shared that, but mm-hmm. that's something that never changes. So regardless of who's in office, who's going to win, who's going to uh, lose, aware what sectors are going to get money, what sectors will money get taken away from, well, we've got these rules and these systems that, that uh, we follow. And Eric, you and I have different rules and different systems, but I mm-hmm. think the philosophy of develop these rules that work in these systems and then follow them. Uh, mm-hmm. I think we share that thought. Uh, I think that's something that is not different from what we believe. Right. I think I would call it a disciplined approach, a rule-based or disciplined approach to investing is in, in my view. And I believe in your view, yeah. ultimately the path to successful investment with not getting burned necessarily by making a really big and bad subjective call. I completely agree. I completely agree with that. To our listeners, thank you very much for sitting with us. I do wonder right now, Eric, well over an hour in, if it's just you and me talking and nobody else stuck around. (laughs) So for those of you that did, 
Thank you very much. And if the only one, Eric, is you and I that stick around, thank you for not <laughs> hanging up on me on this Zoom. <laughs> I tell you what, I think this is an, a conversation that for particularly for some of our clients that have more of a quantitative, mathematical, engineering sort of bent, this, yeah. is, this is right up their alley. Yeah, the, the problem is we're both, you and I are both sort of uh, finance and investment nerds and you get us talking about the subject <laughs> and we can go for, for days. Uh, but to all of our listeners, thank you very much for joining us again. We hope you uh, like uh, our show. Please subscribe, give us five stars, tell your friends about us. And if you have topics or questions, please share them with us. We would love to address those. Thank you again for joining us for another episode of the Retirement Lifestyle Show. Thank you for listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Show. If you found this show helpful, gained knowledge, or enjoyed the time you spent with Roshan, Eric, and Adrian, tell your friends and leave us a five-star review. This will help others discover the show. To access our show notes, download any of the tools mentioned in today's podcast, or to ask us a question, go to retirewithroshan.com. That's retire with Roshan. R-O-S-H-A-N dot com. All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and guests are solely their own. While based on information they believe is reliable, neither Arate Wealth nor its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, nor do their opinions reflect the opinion of Arate Wealth. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be regarded as specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. Finally, our music is The Chance by Jason Shaw and Audionautics. It's part of the YouTube audio library and it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.